We have a saying in our culture that describes what happens when someone gets so lost in a bunch of details about a subject that he misses the point. We say he can't see the forest for the trees. That kind of thing can happen to us in many areas of life, including our study of the Word of God. It's very easy to get so caught up in a lot of details that we miss the big picture. So my goal for a few weeks is to do a survey of the Bible to give us a handle on what this book is all about. We, we don't want to fail to see the forest because of all of the trees, especially since we do so much exposition here, verse by verse, phrase by phrase exposition. We want to make sure that we not only see the details, but we have the big picture. So we want to get a bird's eye view so that we have a handle on God's Word, not only sort of on a, a micro level, but a macro level. In this message, I want us to consider the entire Bible as a whole in sort of a sweeping overview. Then, Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we'll go back and do a survey of the Old Testament, survey of the New Testament, and some other specifics. But to begin with, I want to make sure we understand what kind of book we are dealing with when we read the Bible, when we study the Bible, when we seek to interpret the Bible. Now, I realize that for some of you, this may be basic, but it's necessary information to keep in mind when seeking to understand God's Word, the Bible. These are some of the foundational facts for understanding the Bible. As you probably know, the Bible is a book made up of 66 books, 66 individual books. There are 39 books in the Hebrew Scripture, also known as the Old Testament, and there are 27 books in the New Testament. God chose to use approximately 40 human authors to contribute to the Bible, and we say approximately because there are some books of the Bible uh, that we don't know who the author was, who wrote the book. The book of Hebrews is a classic example. There are speculations and suggestions, but no one knows for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. And there are other books in Scripture that fall into that category. So God chose to use approximately 40 human authors to contribute to the Bible. And yet, the ultimate author of the Bible is God himself, specifically God the Holy Spirit. All of the great works of God involved all of the triune Godhead, but as you know, that there are certain works uh, in which one member of the Godhead ha has a primary, the Godhead has a primary role. And I think it is safe to say that when it comes to Scripture, the person in the triune Godhead who played the primary role was God the Holy Spirit in his work of inspiration, guiding human authors to record what God wanted recorded. In the sovereign plan of God, he chose to write the Old Testament primarily in the Hebrew language. This was a logical choice for at least two reasons. First of all, the Old Testament deals almost exclusively with the Jewish people whose primary language was Hebrew. So we would expect God to write his message in the language that was the mother tongue for the people who would be reading it. But I believe there's another reason why God chose to use Hebrew to write the Old Testament. You see, Hebrew is a very pictorial language, descriptive language. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, 
then you know that a great deal of it is composed of true stories, historical stories. For example, there is the story of creation, the story of the fall, the story of the Tower of Babel, the story of the flood, the story of the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the story of Moses, the story of the exodus from Egypt. There is the collection of stories about the conquest of the promised land. There are the stories of the judges, such as Gideon and Samson. There are the stories of King Saul. There are the famous stories of King David, such as his victory over Goliath. There are the stories of Solomon. In addition, there is the story of Nehemiah returning to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. There is the story of Esther. There is the story of Job. There are the Psalms. On and on it goes in the Old Testament. All of these stories and many more were originally described in the Hebrew language, which is such a beautiful pictorial language. But some parts of the Old Testament were originally written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the international language of that time and the language of commerce. So whenever God wanted the message to be broadened beyond the Jewish people, he had it written in Aramaic. For example, Daniel chapters 2 through 7 More specifically, I think it's verse 4 of Daniel 2 begins the the Hebrew. Daniel 2, 4 through 7 was originally written in Aramaic. Those chapters deal specifically with God's plan for the nations and the kingdoms of the world. So it makes sense that they were written not in Hebrew, but rather in Aramaic. Also, parts of Ezra were written in Aramaic. But the vast majority of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was originally written in what is called Koine Greek. Koine Greek is very similar to modern Greek or classical Greek, but there are some differences. Again, God's choice to use this particular language was a logical choice for at least two reasons. Number one, Greek was an international language at the time the New Testament was written. Just a few hundred years before the birth of Christ, Alexander the Great conquered the world and he spread the Greek language wherever he went. Most people in the world knew Greek. So it makes sense that God chose to write the New Testament in Greek. But also, I think there's a second reason why God, in his providence, in his sovereignty, chose that language. Greek is an extremely precise language language. With all the technical theological issues the New Testament deals with, we would expect God to use a very precise language. I mean, think with me for just a moment about issues such as the incarnation, the deity, and the humanity of Christ, the hypostatic union, the triunity of God. All of these very important doctrines need precision, and the Greek language is very precise. Let me show you one example of this precision. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Verse 15. The opening verses of Matthew record a genealogy, and they record the genealogy through the man, the male line, For example, verse 2, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, etc. Now you have this pattern all the way down, and then you come to verse 15, where we read this. 
Uh, Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Matthan, Matthan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. The fascinating thing about this verse is the fact that the little phrase, of whom, in the middle of verse 16, is a feminine singular construction in the Greek language. Now, I'm sure you know that you can't produce a child with just a feminine singular. There must be the introduction of a male agent for conception. But in the case of Jesus, there was no human male agent involved in his conception. Mary was a virgin when she conceived, and she was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. And here in Matthew 1.16, the Holy Spirit uses the precision of the Greek language to make sure that everyone understands that Jesus was born of Mary, not Mary and Joseph. That's just one example of the precision of the Greek language. So God chose to write a book. God chose to write a book composed of 66 books. He wrote the Old Testament in Hebrew and some Aramaic. He wrote the New Testament in Greek. But there are more divisions in the Bible than just the division of Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament can be broken down into at least five sections. The first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of Hebrew Scripture, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are known as the Pentateuch, or the Books of Law, or the term Torah, which is the Hebrew word and a common English transliterated word to use to refer to the first five books of the Bible. The books of Joshua through Esther are known as the books of history. The books of Job through Song of Solomon are known as poetry. Now when you hear the word poetry, however, don't think of poetry in the English sense, sort of like Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. That's what we think of when we think of poetry, rhyme, and so forth. That's not, that's not the case with Hebrew poetry. It's not an issue of rhyme. There is meter. There's, there, there are patterns, but it's stylistic. It's stylistic kind of writing. So that, those books are poetry. The books of Isaiah through Daniel are known as the major prophets, because of their size. They are not called major because they are more important than the other prophets, but they are called such because of their size. The books of Hosea through Malachi are known as the minor prophets, again, because of their size in comparison to Isaiah 66 chapters, uh, Jeremiah 50-some chapters, Ezekiel 48 chapters, etc. These designations are logical more than biblical, but before anyone is quick to throw them out, you should be aware of the fact that the Bible recognizes some of these kinds of divisions of the Old Testament in verses like Matthew 5.18, Luke 24.44, etc. But God did not stop there in dispensing His truth. God did not stop there in His dispensing of divine revelation. In the progress of Revelation, God saw fit to give us more information and further clarification, building on Hebrew Scripture and contained in what is known as the New Testament. Theologians refer to this occurrence 
as progressive revelation. In other words, God did not dump the whole truckload of truth on the people of the Old Testament time, but instead he dispensed his truth progressively. Later revelation builds on earlier revelation. Later truth builds on earlier truth. It's not contradictory. It's complementary and supplementary. For example, just one illustration of this. The doctrine of the triunity of God, as you probably know, is only alluded to in Hebrew Scripture. There are inferences in Hebrew Scripture, but it is spelled out in great detail in the New Testament. And there are many other examples of this concept of progressive revelation from Hebrew Scripture on into the New Testament. The New Testament can also be divided up into five sections. The first four books of the New Testament are known as the Gospels. They are called that for a specific reason. Though they are certainly historically accurate, their primary purpose does not seem to be to provide a historical record of the life of Jesus as much as a proclamation of who he is and what he came to do. That is why the gospel writers, for the most part, are not all that concerned with chronology. If you've ever tried to study a harmony of the gospels, then you're aware of this. The the chronology doesn't flow in the gospels. They take certain events, put them earlier, later, etc. Each gospel writer picked and chose the stories from the life of Jesus that fit his particular purpose for his gospel. So, again, I say, the gospels are historically accurate. But they are not written as history. They are not intended to just be merely a a historical account of the life of this man, Jesus. They are a special kind of writing put together with a special purpose, and they are called Gospels. The book of Acts stands alone as a historical transition book from the Gospels to the church epistles. And a key word in that statement is the word transition book. You will really be confused in the book of Acts if you fail to see that it is a transitional book. I mean, think with me about the major transitions going on in the book of Acts. You have the transition from the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You have the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, the transition from the the age of law to the age of grace. You have the transition right within the book from Peter being the focus to Paul being the focus. You have the transition from the Jewish people, the people of Israel being the focus, to the church being the focus, the church made up primarily of Gentiles. Many transitions going on. Transitions within the book about the the role and work of the Holy Spirit. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, you have people who were actually Christians, but did not possess the Holy Spirit. By the time you get to later in the book of Acts, when Paul wrote Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that's an absolute impossibility. Because Romans 8, 9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not even his. He's not even a Christian. But there were believers, true Christians, in the early phases of the book of Acts who did not possess the Holy Spirit. So Acts is a historical transition book from the Gospels to the church epistles. The books of Romans through Philemon are known as the church epistles 
because they were written about church situations to churches or to church leaders, and they were written by Paul, who was specially chosen as the apostle of the mystery of the church. The books of Hebrews through Jude are often classified as general epistles because they are more general in content about the Christian life, and they are less ecclesiological in nature, that is, less about the church in nature than the letters of Paul. By the way, some choose not to break down the epistles into those two categories, but choose instead to lump them all into one category known as epistles or letters. Again, these are logical distinctions, not so much biblically mandated distinctions. They're distinctions for us to get a handle on the Bible as a whole and to know how each book fits in the broader picture. The last book of the New Testament is the book of Revelation, which is primarily prophetic, futuristic, or apocalyptic. And with that, the canon of Scripture is closed. In other words, God is no longer dispensing new information or new revelation, contrary to what some people teach. Jude 3 says, The faith has already been once for all delivered to the saints. Beloved, it's a very dangerous thing to hear. It's very dangerous to hear people talking about God giving them new revelation and new information, new truth, because that is the trademark of all the cults. The common denominator of all the cults, though they have a lot of differences among them, the common denominator is that they all begin with new revelation, new information supposedly from God. The fact is, God has given us His revelation, and that is the Bible. Now it is our responsibility to rightly divide the word of truth. So those are some of the common divisions of the Bible in order to help us get a handle on the uniquenesses of the various kinds of books that make up the Bible. But the Bible is divided even further to help us get a handle on it. It is divided into chapters and verses. This wasn't a part of the original manuscripts. Let me emphasize this. These divisions were not a part of the original manuscripts, but these divisions were added later to assist us in our study of Scripture. In the year 1227, a man by the name of Stephen Langton put the chapter divisions in the Bible, and they are helpful. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine trying to have a home Bible study in the book of Isaiah with no chapter divisions? How are you going to know where you're at, where each other is, you know, when you're reading a, a passage? So the chapter divisions are helpful. About 300 years later, in 1555, a man by the name of Robert Stephanus put the verse divisions in the text. If you do a lot of Bible study, then you know how helpful these are. Finding passages, because you can go to a chapter and then go to a verse, rather than just having the whole thing trying to find something. But it is important to remember that they weren't a part of the original manuscripts, and therefore they aren't inspired. Occasionally, occasionally the chapter and or verse divisions are not in the best place, and there is therefore an unfortunate break. Let me show you just one example of this. You're in Matthew 1. Go to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. 
verse 27, Jesus said, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Does that verse give you a problem? Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people who are around, his disciples, and he says, Assuredly, certainly, no doubt, I say to you, there are some standing here, right then, 2,000 years ago, who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. If you stop right there, then you might get confused to think that this verse isn't true. All the disciples are dead, long dead. And Jesus still hasn't come in his kingdom glory. But skip the chapter division and notice the first few verses of chapter 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by himself, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. It's obvious if you study this event in the Synoptic Gospels, and time won't allow us in this message, but it's obvious that each of the the, the writers who recorded this event intended for us to understand that this was a fulfillment of what Jesus said in 1628. The transfiguration gave these three disciples a preview of the glory Jesus would manifest when he comes to set up his kingdom. The word kingdom at the end of 1628 could be translated royal splendor. And Jesus was saying, some of you will not die until you see me in my royal splendor. That happened six days later. The chapter division confuses us because in this case it's placed right in the middle of the story. But for the most part, the chapter and verse divisions are helpful in breaking down the Bible into bite-sized portions so we can get a handle on understanding it. And that's what we're after, beloved. That's what we want. We want to understand what God has said and what God means by what he has said. We want to understand God's amazing word. The book you hold in your hand is a miraculous book. It was written over a period of almost 1,600 years, and yet there are no contradictions, and there is perfect harmony. That's because the ultimate author, as I said earlier, is God himself, specifically God the Holy Spirit. Listen to this description of Scripture by Josh McDowell. The Bible was written over a 1,500-year span, written over 40 generations, written by over 40 authors from every walk of life, including kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, etc. For example, Moses, a political leader, leader trained in the universities of Egypt, Peter, a fisherman, Amos, a herdsman, Joshua, a military general, Nehemiah, a cupbearer, Daniel, a prime minister, Luke, a doctor, Solomon, a king, Matthew, a tax collector, Paul, a rabbi. It was written in different places. Moses in the wilderness, Jeremiah in a dungeon, Daniel on a hillside and in a palace, Paul inside prison walls, Luke while traveling, John while on the Isle of Patmos, others in the rigors of military campaign. 
It was written at different times. David in times of war and Solomon in times of peace. It was written during different moods, some writing from the heights of joy and some writing from the depths of sorrow and despair. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And the amazing thing about it is it has no contradictions, no errors, no mistakes. All the way back in 1930, a man by the name of Paul Rader offered $1,000 to anyone who could come up with one single proof, not allegation, one single proof, that the Bible contradicts itself in history, geology, archaeology, astronomy, physics, chemistry, or ethnology. No one ever claimed that $1,000, and no one ever will. Because this book is God's Word, and God's Word has no error. It is accurate in every detail. Look at what Jesus had to say about it. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, to this familiar statement of our Lord. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Of course, our Lord is referring here to Hebrew Scripture, but the principle from 2 Timothy 3.16 would apply to the New Testament. Notice what Jesus says. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Every jot and tittle. And theologians, grammarians sort of debate and suggest what Jesus is referring to. Maybe the yod letter in Hebrew or the difference between a resh and a dalit. There's a little stroke there. Uh, Whatever Jesus was referring to, the point is obvious. Every little letter, stroke, every detail of Scripture is accurate. Every part is God-breathed, to borrow Paul's wording from 2 Timothy. So that in Matthew 22, Jesus actually based his argument on the tense of a Hebrew verb. Go over to chapter 22 with me to show you this. Matthew chapter 22. Verse 23, the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him. Pause for just a moment here. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of Jesus' day. There were three things that they especially did not believe in. They had a lot of different views, but three things they really stood on. One, they didn't believe in angels, the the angelic world. Two, they did not believe in resurrection, as we're told here. And thirdly, they did not believe in life after death. When you die, that's it, which is why they didn't believe in resurrection. Think about it. If there is no life after death, then why would God raise a body? Because there's nothing alive to inhabit that body. So they didn't believe in life after death. When the person died, they said, that's it. And therefore, they didn't believe in bodily resurrection because why bother raising the body when there are no people alive after they die? So those three things, keep that in mind as we go through this. Those three things they vehemently denied. No angels, no resurrection, no life after death. So they're going to test Jesus. Verse 24, they said, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brothers. Now there were with us seven brothers, 
The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother, likewise the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, which we don't believe in, but you do, Jesus, whose wife shall wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. You are deceived. You are in error, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, which you don't believe in, but is true, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels, which you don't believe in, but are true. And then, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? That, that statement by God is reiterated several times in uh, Torah, in Hebrew Scripture, in the law, after, here's the key, after the deaths of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, long after they were dead. In fact, this, this comes right out of, uh, uh, even out of the book of Exodus, chapter 3, God made that statement. So long after they had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then here's Jesus' conclusion. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished. You know why they were astonished? Because Jesus based his point on the present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was. I am, and God said that long after they were dead, implying, you know what? They're not dead. They're still alive. Sure, their body has died, but I am their God, not I was their God. And Jesus says that is proof, that is evidence that there is life after death. No wonder the crowd was astonished. It's remarkable to base your whole point, your whole argument on the tense of a Hebrew verb. That shows the overwhelming confidence Jesus had in verbal plenary inspiration. The Apostle Paul does a similar thing in Galatians 3, verse 16, where he builds his argument on the difference between the word seed or seeds. Galatians 3.16, listen as I read it to you. He says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. Paul based his argument on the difference between the singular as opposed to the plural. Again, it shows an overwhelming confidence in verbal plenary inspiration, the very details of Scripture. In John 10, 35, Jesus put it this way, the Word of God cannot be broken. The Bible is the Word of God. The liberal theologian says the Bible contains the Word of God. It's in here. We have to find it, sort through, demythologize, throw some of it out, but the Bible contains the Word of God. The neo-Orthodox theologian says the Bible becomes the Word of God. It has the potential if it jumps off the page and speaks to your heart, so it has the potential to become the Word of God, but beloved, the fact is the Bible is the Word of God. It doesn't merely contain the Word of God, and it doesn't become the Word of God. It is the Word of God. If the Bible were simply a human book, it would not speak so boldly about sin, hell, condemnation, total depravity. It's not the kind of thing a person would write or people would write saying that all people have no hope. They can do nothing to help themselves. Furthermore, man could not write about all the things that are written about in Scripture with perfect unity. 
Over 3,800 times the Bible claims to be from God, accurate, and authoritative. A variety of different ways. Uh, from statements like, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, or thus says the Lord, or it was revealed to, or God, it, over 3,800 times in different ways, the Bible claims to be from God, accurate, and authoritative. And the very fact that it has survived numerous attacks on its physical existence is further evidence that the Bible is the book of God. One example, in the year 303, the emperor Diocletian issued an edict, quote, to stop Christians from worshiping and to destroy their scriptures. How many of you have Bibles in your hand right now? Almost all. Diocletian's edict failed. You know why? Because of one simple verse in Matthew 24 from the lips of our Lord himself. Matthew 24, verse 35. Jesus said it this way. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. That's why all the attempts to destroy the word of God have failed. In fact, just 25 years after the edict of Diocletian Constantine, the next Roman emperor, he gave an edict, and it said, quote, 50 copies of the scriptures will be prepared at the expense of the government, end quote. Beloved, no one is going to destroy this book. No one. This isn't just another ordinary book. These are the very words of God. The Bible is not just a book among books. It's the very mind of God. It is the very mind of Christ. That's why it's still around today. No other book, this is not an overstatement, no other book could have survived the attacks that have been leveled at the Bible. H.L. Hastings said this, and I quote, Infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels with all their assaults make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his dominion, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire... The church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die and the book still lives. End quote. Bernard Ram, who was a scholar in the area of hermeneutics or Bible interpretation, added this statement, quote, A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knifed, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology or modern times has been subject to such a mass attack as the Bible, with such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and erudition upon every chapter, line, and tenet, yet the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, and studied by millions, end quote. One man put it this way, we might as well put our shoulder to the burning wheel of the sun and try to stop it on its flaming course as attempt to stop the circulation of the Bible, end quote. The indestructibility of this book is strong proof that it is the Word of God. 
Add to that fact, add to that the fact of the incredible accuracy of the Bible, and you have invincible proof for the divine authorship of Scripture. Do you realize just how accurate the written Word of God is? There are so many ways to, to illustrate this and explain it. Here's a few. At the first coming of Christ, there were 322 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. A mathematician has figured out the odds of that happening by pure chance, and here is the fraction. One over 84 followed by 97 zeros. That didn't happen by chance. That's the accuracy of Scripture. The book of Daniel in chapter 9 predicts the very day Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a colt and present himself as Messiah. You think, well, what's so amazing about that? Daniel predicted that 483 years before it happened, and it happened 483 years later to the very day. That is why after it happened and the Jewish people did not repent, Jesus warned them of their destruction, and he said to them, if you had known this was your day... You should have known, he's saying. You should have known this was your day. If you took Scripture seriously and just read it and, and, and analyzed it and studied it and calculated it and just did the math of the prediction there in Daniel 9, you would know this is the day. But you didn't know it was the day. You missed your day, and for that, you'll be destroyed. I ran across an interesting statement a while back regarding some scientists who determined that if special creation were true, and they said it's not, but if it were true, that it would have to take place in a definite, unalterable order involving 13 steps. The interesting thing about it is that the book of Genesis records the steps of creation in that exact order. The odds of that happening by pure chance, again, were calculated by a mathematician. He said it was one in 31 quintillion, whatever that means. Then there's the whole area of predictive prophecy or pre-written history. When the Bible was originally written, about one-fourth, maybe closer to one-third of it was predictive. It was predictive prophecy. A great deal of it has already been fulfilled with amazing accuracy. For example, 1 Kings 13, 1 and 2 gives a prophecy about a king named Josiah. This prophecy actually names Josiah as the future king 300 years before he was born. And it was fulfilled in 2 Kings 22 and 23 exactly like God said it would be. Happened just like God said. Another example, in Isaiah 44, 24 through 28, God told what a man named Cyrus was going to do as king 150 years before he was born. And the amazing thing about that one is, we're not talking about someone sort of within the, the family of faith. We're talking about a pagan king. And God said, this is what he will do. This is exactly what he will do. And we could, we could multiply examples of fulfilled prophecies that verify the accuracy of Scripture. The Bible is not a history textbook. As I mentioned earlier, the Gospels were not intended to be an exhaustive history. None of Scripture, even the historical books, are not intended to be exhaustive history. The Bible is not really a science textbook. It's not, it doesn't give us, you know, the, the, uh, all the uh, periodic table and all of the things of science. But let me tell you something, beloved. When the Bible speaks about history, it's accurate. When the Bible speaks about science, it's accurate. And yet, there are people who claim to believe in Jesus. Maybe that's a poor way to say it. There are people who do believe in Jesus. 
people who call themselves Christians, and I'm not implying they're not, but people who, who are Christians, but at the same time, they are unwilling to affirm the accuracy of Scripture. This despite the fact that Jesus himself fully affirmed the accuracy of the Bible. There's no doubt about it that Jesus staked his integrity, his credibility, and his reputation on the accuracy of Scripture. Even stories that would be considered bizarre to the mind of modern man, he doesn't hesitate to refer to. Adam and Eve, people laugh at that. Jesus didn't hesitate to to refer to them as historical realities. Noah, Jonah, these stories Jesus referred to, Jesus quoted without any hesitancy. His whole life was wrapped up in the written Word of God. Just read the Gospels sometimes. Read through one of the Gospels on on an occasion just for this purpose, just to notice how often Jesus made statements like this. It is written. Have you not read? Have you not heard? don't, Don't you know? And then he'll refer to Scripture. Over and over and over again, he appealed to Scripture. He quoted it time and time again. And the most, the, the most profound example may be when he was tempted, he didn't say to Satan, hey, what do you think you're doing? I'm the son of God. You can't do this. It's not the way Jesus battled. Three times he said, it is written. It is written. Jesus quoted scripture as authority. So it's a contradiction. It's a contradiction for people to say they believe in Jesus, but they don't really believe in the accuracy and authority of scripture. Jesus did. The Bible is the written word of God. And just like the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the written word of God is errorless, flawless, and perfect in its original manuscripts. These are the foundations of understanding the Bible because if you don't believe wholeheartedly in verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, then you won't apply yourself wholeheartedly to understand and apply God's book. To say it another way, if you don't have complete confidence in the accuracy and the relevancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, then you won't bother to apply yourself diligently to the task of understanding and living out its message. But if you will commit yourself to the task, I promise you that the benefits will be extremely and eternally rewarding. Look with me at Psalm 19 as we close. Familiar words about Hebrew Scripture, but again, verses like 2 Timothy 3.16 would indicate that we can apply these same words to the New Testament. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. Here we go. And in keeping them there is great reward. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in keeping the Word of God there is great reward? If you do, then you'll never get tired of reading this book, studying this book, memorizing this book, to know God through His self-revelation. 
Let's bow as we close. Father, what a treasure your word is. As we've taken these few moments together to just look at it in a big picture, uh, an overview, how you chose to give us your truth and how you chose to put it together. It's, it's a marvel. It's a, it's a thrill to contemplate it. So thank you, thank you, thank you for Scripture. And we say that even with more earnestness when we realize how many people around the world don't have what we have. We have such good, accurate translations of your word in our language. May we never take that for granted. But always be appreciative. Always, always be thankful. So we give you thanks and re revive our earnestness and, and, and just recharge our batteries, as it were, to, to really be invigorated with the truth that we just read here in Psalm 19 that referring to your word and keeping your word, there is great reward, both now and in eternity. We pray this in the precious and matchless name of your Son, the living word, the Lord Jesus. Amen.